A John not afraid to confront power. John not afraid to walk in the ways of the Lord. And that's a perfect example of him. Now, Jesus says, Elijah has come in John the Baptist. He is the forerunner. Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 3 writes, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This verse tells us of the forerunner, the one who comes before the Messiah. And that's where David begins today in the first section of his message, John the Baptizer. We're going to look at the life of John the Baptizer. Some of you call him John the Baptist. Well, really, he was more John the Baptizer than he was John the Baptist. Didn't have a denominational affiliation, by the way. He was the one who baptized a lot of people. But really, to understand today's verses, there are some things that happened beforehand that you need to know about. Uh, First of all, there is a long history of prophets in the Bible that God used to speak to his people. Probably the first and foremost of them is Moses. We see that as Moses led the children of Israel toward the promised land, God used him as a prophet continually to speak to the people of God and to try to confront their sinfulness. Uh, We see Moses actually referring to a prophet who will come much later in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He is called the prophet, and that's important for today's message later on. Moses was simply saying that he is in the line of a lot of prophets who will come to Israel and speak God's truth to power and to the people when they needed to change. So you see, with Moses on down through the prophets of the Old Testament, the major prophets who are called such because of the lengths of their book, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, to the minor prophets called such because of the size of their books from, you know, all through Malachi. So in order to understand today's message, you need to understand the prophets of the Old Testament. And the one I want to center on right now is the one who's often considered the greatest of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah. Uh, He prophesied during the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. They were awful and godless in every possible way. They introduced all kinds of idolatry and sexual practices that were anti-God. And Elijah was the one whom God chose to confront Ahab and Jezebel. Indeed, when Elijah went to heaven, he did not die. He was simply translated into heaven. There are two biblical characters who never died. One is Enoch in the Old Testament. The second is Elijah. And the Jews so venerated Elijah that during the Passover celebration, their holiest of days during the year, around the Passover table, they would have a fifth cup and it would be filled with wine. It was called Elijah's cup. And they put it there on the table in case Elijah came back again because there was this belief that Elijah would precede the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who would come from heaven and bring God's kingdom to earth. Again, Elijah would be the prophet whom God chose 
partly because he never died, but also because he was such a mighty prophet to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So with that understanding of the importance of Elijah and how there was a fifth cup of wine at the Passover table that was for Elijah in case he came that he would have a place to drink at the Passover table, you then go to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament written in the 400s. It was Malachi, a prophet of God, speaking to the godlessness of the people. He was confronting their marriages falling apart. He was confronting their lack of generosity and them not obeying the tithe. Many of you know Malachi 3, verses 8 and following, how Malachi says you're robbing God by not giving him the tithe. The tithe belongs to God. That first tenth belongs to him. You need to give that to him. And he was confronting some other abominations. And interestingly, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, there's this verse. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there will be a messenger who will precede the Lord of hosts. He'll suddenly come to his temple, and then you ask the question, well, who is this messenger? Malachi answers that later on in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 when he says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So when Elijah comes into the world, he will be the forerunner, the messenger to bring forth the Messiah, the anointed one of God who will bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth. So again, the Jews had this great expectation of Elijah forerunning the Messiah. They lived every day in hoping that the Messiah would come. Then at the end of Malachi and then at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have 400 years of what's called intertestamental silence. The Jews had 400 years of no voice from the Lord. They had no voice from a prophet. No prophet came forth with, thus saith the Lord. And for those 400 years from Malachi to Matthew, the people just waited. And they waited. And they waited until God finally decided to speak. And when did he decide to speak? He decided to speak in Luke, the first chapter, a powerful section of Scripture where we see God speaking again in a prophetic way to his people. And he decided to do so through a man named John, known later as John the Baptizer. But how did John come into this world? Well, if you read Luke, the first chapter, starting with verse 5, you see that there was a priest, a man named Zechariah. He was a good, righteous, and godly man. But Zechariah was old, and he was married to Elizabeth, a really righteous woman as well. But she was old, and they were both barren. There was no child that had been given to them. Now, you need to know that childlessness and barrenness during that day was a much greater horror than what we know today. Now, that's not to speak to you women out there who are wanting babies and haven't had them yet. I'm praying fervently for you that God would give you the desires of your heart. But in that culture, women wanted to have multiple children, five, seven, nine. It was a great gift to have that many children. 
and Elizabeth and Zechariah didn't have any children at all, as opposed to our culture where we are diminishing the sizes of our families. Uh, interestingly, in America, for example, we now are at 1.7 kids per family. We are at a rate where we will not replenish ourselves, we'll continue to shrink, and that has huge potential problems, especially as people age and draw upon Social Security and there aren't enough workers to replace them in the system. And in fact, we have such a desire not to have children sometimes or abort them because they're an inconvenience. Those ideas would have never been thought of during the time of Elizabeth and Zechariah. People wanted children. They were a reward. They were a heritage from God. And here were Elizabeth and Zechariah in their older years without a child. And you see in Luke 1 verses 5 through 25 that Zechariah's in the temple as a priest and he's praying to God and the angel Gabriel appears to him and says something really cool. God's heard your prayers. Don't you just love it? When you know that God has heard your prayers. And then Gabriel goes on to say to Zechariah, and, and this child will take a Nazarite vow. Not a drop of alcohol will ever touch his lips. Uh, he'll be a righteous child unto the Lord from day one. And you will dedicate him to me, and his name will be John. Well, Zechariah responds, how can this be? Starting expressing words of doubt. And the angel Gabriel said, that's it, man. You're gonna be quiet until the baby's born. We don't know exactly why that is, but I can't help but think that, you know, even when children are in utero, even when they're in the womb, they are aware of what's going on outside. I believe that they can hear parents arguing or they can hear parents loving on the child even in the womb. And I don't think Gabriel and especially God wanted negative, doubt-filled, unbelieving words spoken about this special child who was placed in Elizabeth's womb. So Zechariah stayed quiet until the child was finally born, and what an incredible day that must have been, for we see in Luke 1, verse 24, after these days, after what Gabriel had said to Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So you see, barrenness in that day was a reproach. It was awful to have happened to somebody. And Elizabeth hid away for five months, probably just contemplating the angel Gabriel appearing to her husband and all the promises he made about this mighty child being righteous, being like a Nazarite vow being given to him and he would change people's lives. I know that when Marilyn and I went through our years of infertility and finally she conceived that Marilyn kind of went and hid herself for a season too just to contemplate the goodness of God after all of those long years of barrenness and waiting. Then what happened was uh, we see Gabriel coming to a child, a teenager named Mary. And I say child because she could have been as young as 12 or 13 years of age. The same angel that appeared to Zechariah now appears to Mary and says, hail, O favored one, and says to Mary that the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. You are such a great woman of God. Your faith is extraordinary. You're going to have a child as well. Now, the problem with Mary was she was betrothed, she was engaged, but she had not had intimacy with her husband-to-be Joseph. So 
Gabriel says to her, nothing is impossible with God. So you see, Mary and Elizabeth were related. They were either cousins or Elizabeth was Mary's aunt. They had a close personal relationship. We know that because after the child had been conceived in Elizabeth's womb, some five to six months later, Mary has the visitation from Gabriel. And then Mary, after the child is placed in her womb by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, Gabriel having said to Mary uh, in verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. So then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her relative. And what is so fascinating is as Mary enters the room with this Jesus in her womb and John the Baptist now six months in Elizabeth's womb, Elizabeth says, my child in my womb has leapt for joy. Now that's fascinating, folks, because the term that's used for the child in Mary's womb is blepos. The term that's used for the child in Elizabeth's womb is blepos. It means child. It's the same word when Jesus said, let the children come to me. Biblically, why I have such a strong pro-life stand, if this is the word of God, is at least partly because of that word blepos. What it means, it points to an actual child in the womb. And John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb actually at five to six months can feel joy and can leap with that joy. So that means that a child, even at that age, can have feelings. And we need to protect those children that God has preciously created in the womb. It's God's deal to give life and to take it away. But, but you see Mary having this extraordinary experience with Elizabeth and John the Baptist, then she writes a song called the Magnificat and sings it to the glory of God because of what she's witnessing with her child and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb as well. Then, then John the Baptist comes into this world uh, right after Mary leaves and they ask Elizabeth, what do you want to name him? And she says, John, even though John couldn't have spoken, he probably wrote it out. This is what Gabriel wanted me to name the child. And the people go, well, there's no one in your family named John. And they go to Zechariah himself and ask the question, what do you want the child to be named? And Zechariah writes out, name him John. Thus, John the Baptist is now in the world. And Zechariah writes out a magnificent prophecy about this child and about Israel called the Nunc Dimittis in the words that follow. Then, of course, Jesus is birthed thereafter, and we have the wonderful story of God becoming one of us in human flesh in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus and John the Baptist are now in the world. Well, if you know the story of John and Jesus, they both put their ministries on hold for about 30 years. Uh, John really did take his Nazarite vow seriously. The Bible tells us that he wore like a leather belt and like camel's hair uh, jackets. He had probably wild hair, maybe something that looked like an afro today. And his diet basically consisted of locusts and honey. So he got his protein from insects and he got his sugar fix from honey. I guess that what, that's what gave him energy. And when he began his public ministry, um, he just had one basic message and here it was. Repent. Repent. Change your life. And amazingly, as he started preaching that message, Hundreds and thousands started coming to him. They were convicted 
of their sin. And then John began baptizing them in water as a way of an outward evidence of their sins being washed away. Now, later, John pokes his finger in the eye of King Herod, who stole his brother's beautiful wife to be his wife, and John the Baptist found that immoral and ungodly and said so, and you know, Herod's new wife didn't like it one bit, and she plotted and schemed with Salome, her uh, child, to have John the Baptist's head put on a platter. Well, she dances before Herod, and you know how men are, man. When they have some wine and they have scantily clad women before them, they'll just give in to anything. So he agrees and ultimately has John's head served to his wife on a platter. Uh, John not afraid to confront power. John not afraid to walk in the ways of the Lord, and that's a perfect example of him. Now, his relationship with Jesus is very interesting, and you see in Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 14, that Jesus actually calls John the Baptist Elijah. He says that John the Baptist is Elijah the forerunner, referred to in Malachi, the one who would come before the anointed one, the Messiah, whom we know as Jesus. So the Jews wondered when Elijah would come Jesus says, Elijah has come in John the Baptist. He is the forerunner with all of that background information. Now, let's go to the Gospel of John and pick up the verses that we left last time we were together. In John the first chapter, verses six through eight, a parenthesis of that great prologue talking about who Jesus is, John writes this message, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him and that him is Jesus. He, John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. In what ways do you put your trust in God? Coming up, David joins me in a discussion about trust. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, Thank you, Bart, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry, and and more importantly, about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and we play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young, young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? 
The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org or they can call me straight up in my cell phone and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks too to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org and there you can see some of our photo galleries. You can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, in your daily e-devotions, you recently wrote about how God wants to be our personal God of trust. Can you tell us about that? Well, actually, Jen, in King David's own words in one of the Psalms, he calls God my trust. And I think David is trying to help us understand that God doesn't want to be some ethereal, distant person way off in the sky who's never involved in our lives, God really wants to be in a personal relationship with each and every one of us. And for Christians, that is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, indwells our hearts, and we now have a living, personal, dynamic relationship with Jesus, with the God of this universe. So when you realize that, you can therefore call God my trust, as David did in Psalm 71, 5. David leaned on the Lord. He depended on him at all times, uh, from David's youth until the end of his life, he put his trust and confidence completely and foremost in God himself. He trusted in the Lord with all of his heart and did not lean on his own understanding, those famous verses in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. So as we trust in so many different things and people in this world, God Mm -hmm. wants us to put our faith and trust in him mostly above all else. That doesn't mean we don't need people in our lives. We don't need to interact with them and trust them for different things, but God is our ultimate trust. He is my personal trust. So here's the question for everyone today. Do you put your trust in God or in people? Do you turn to God in prayer and leave the outcome solely in his hands? Do you pray and walk away? Or do you try to control the circumstance or control the person in your life Mm. to get the results that you want? Well, your daddy in heaven wants you to trust him with every area of your life. And all means all. (laughs) Every single area under the authority of the creator of the universe. So today, everyone, put your trust in God. Why so downcast, O my soul? You put your trust in God, David said in another one of the Psalms. Believe he's there for you, that he cares for you in any and every and all situations. Pray to him now, Daddy, thank you for loving me. Thank you for being my trust, my personal trust. I never have to worry because you promise that you will never leave me or forsake me. I trust you with every part of my life today tomorrow until the close of the age. Mm. Everyone, simply make God your trust. Put everything in his hands. And you can say then with King David, God is my personal trust. Isn't that what the Lord wants from all of us, Jen? He really does. He wants us to trust him with with our whole hearts because he's good. That's the heart of the matter, I think. Yeah. And if God is good, we can trust him. Lord, you are good and your mercies endure forever is another place that David cried out Mm -hmm. in the Psalms, a wonderful truth about God. Yes, learn how to trust your spouse. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Learn how to trust your parents and your friends. We need people to undergird us, but mostly, dear friends, put your trust in God. Make him my 
personal, trusting God. And when you do, you can lean on him. You can call upon him. He will be there for you, and you don't ever have to fear anything. That's so good, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, and everyone, if you would like to receive a daily Moment of Hope from me, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org and subscribe to a daily e-blast from me that will arrive in your inbox at 7 a.m. It's free of charge. It's just my gift to you because I want you to start off each day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message on the Gospel of John is from our online worship service. And you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out our Hopecasts. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking that you continue to pray for the children in our schools who are remote learning 